0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. Welcome to March. This month, in honor of Women's History Month, we're featuring conversations with women and non-binary leaders who are working to address the issues in their communities. This week, we're speaking with Amanda Wynn. Amanda is the CEO and founder of RISE, a millennial-driven social change incubator for citizen lawmaking. Because of her work passing legislation for sexual assault survivors, she was nominated for a 2019 Nobel Peace Prize. More recently, Amanda has been working to mobilize a nationwide response to the surging attacks on Asian Americans. Since the beginning of the pandemic, Asian Americans across the country have reported being targeted in 3,000 hate incidents. According to data. anti-Asian American hate crimes are up 1,900% in the last year. And just weeks ago, an 84-year-old Thai American man was murdered in San Francisco. A 91-year-old man was shoved to the ground in Oakland's Chinatown. A 64-year-old Vietnamese woman was assaulted in San Jose, and a Filipino-American man was slashed in the face on a subway in New York City. These assaults are happening during a pandemic where Asian-Americans have disproportionately lost their jobs or had their businesses boycotted. In response to the recent attacks and to the relative silence of mainstream media, Amanda posted a now viral video on Instagram, naming the attacks and calling for media attention and public action. Amanda is here today to talk about this wave of violence and what she's doing about it. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I want to start with this viral video that you posted on February 5th. What led you to make that video?
1: saw these videos of people being horrifically attacked in my community, I didn't see the mainstream media covering it. And I didn't see anyone else talking about it. And so I thought to myself, if no one's going to talk about it, I'm going to use my voice and I'm going to use my platform and ask people to help me get the word out. And overnight... Millions of people responded to it. So three million people um, viewed it overnight. And then in the following days, 11.4 million posts went up on TikTok in response to it. The next business day, the White House press corps asked the president if he had seen the video.
0: Were you surprised by the reaction? Or were you like, no, this makes total sense because nobody else is talking about this?
1: I honestly was really surprised because this wasn't the first time that I had talked about this issue before or about race in general. And every time that I had posted about race, I had lost followers. So when I turned on my camera that day to record that video, I honestly thought that I was going to lose more followers. And I told myself, you know what? It doesn't matter. I am going to do this because it's the right thing to do. And because people are literally dying to be heard right now.
0: I want to talk to the larger race dynamics of these attacks, but I actually first wanted to ask why these attacks may be personal to you. You identify as Asian American and have talked about your family's immigration story, and I was wondering if you might share some of that story and tell us a little bit about how it has affected
1: your experience of these attacks and your response to them. Yeah, of course. I'm so glad you asked that question because so many of these interviews I've been doing have just been focused on the well, terrible parts of it. You know, I'm so proud to be a hyphenated American. And then my experience, it's been Asian American, Vietnamese American. And my parents are boat refugees from Vietnam. They went into death to seek life and to reach these shores where they thought that they would find freedom. And freedom for us has not only been, you know, the freedom to exist that persecution it also is the rest of the things that is afforded to us in that constitution including the right to petition the government and for me at least it's not only a privilege but a responsibility to keep pushing our country to be a more perfect union for me growing up as an Asian American I grew up in Corona California where There aren't actually that many Asian-Americans. I remember being one of the very few in my elementary school, middle school, and even still in high school. And it comes with the immigrant experience when you are really a minority and you look around and no one looks like you, (laughs) eats the same food that you do. And then you grow up and then you see that all the things that you were made fun of for all of a sudden become really trendy when other communities appropriate it. So that's part of the immigrant, an unfortunate part of the Asian-American experience. Of course, there's this perpetual foreigner stereotype. I think every single Asian-American has been asked the question, where are you from? No, really, where are you from? And while that is and could sound like an innocent question, at the heart of it, at the root of it, is this idea that you don't belong. And when you keep insinuating, perpetuating this idea of othering a whole group of people, what you have are consequences that have resulted in lives being lost. Did you experience or did your family experience
0: racism directly in the community, or was it this pervasive, or in addition, this
1: pervasive feeling around belonging? I mean, it certainly is anxiety about being killed on the street. These attacks that have happened have been to people doing everyday things, like walking on the street or going grocery shopping. You know, I think one of the things that really stuck with me in a scarring way was March of 2020, a man stabbed a family and that stabbing, he stabbed a two-year-old and a six-year-old because he thought that they were Chinese, they were Burmese. And he, on the record said that he thought they were spreading COVID. So, you know, there's been a thread of people saying, well, how do you know if these are really hate crimes not only are these crimes caught on camera, they're also being fully admitted to by the perpetrators. And it's worth mentioning that
0: having had a president who was really leaning into these stereotypes and harmful, harmful prejudices definitely didn't help
1: in any of this. Yeah, he stoked it. It's undoubtable that leadership matters. And... He has millions of people who believe what he says and listens to him. And when leaders say things like China virus or Kung Fu, it has consequences. Understanding the assaults also
0: feels like we need to understand the larger history of racism against Asians and Asian Americans in the U.S., And you've been sharing resources on television and social media about the history of anti-Asian racism in the U.S. Are there certain chapters in particular in this history that you feel are just not getting taught or are completely undertaught for most people in this country?
1: Yes, nearly everything. There was a study in 2009 that showed that in some federal agencies, they don't even include Asian Americans as part of the definition of racial minorities. We are completely omitted 2010 census showed that Asian Americans are the largest growing body of ethnic minorities. And yet a Reuters poll showed that we aren't reached out to during elections. We're consistently left off of polling. Political parties do not care about our communities. They do not actually talk to us. And oftentimes when I'm in... Progressive spaces that espouse missions of diversity. I look around and I'm the only Asian American. We're literally erased. That includes not only current times and examples I've listed, but our history has been erased. People don't know that Japanese American citizens were rounded up like animals in these internment camps. People don't know that one of the largest lynchings in U.S. history the Chinese massacre was against Asian Americans. People don't know that the KKK targeted Vietnamese Americans when they came over here in New Orleans and burned their boats. These are all huge traumatic parts of our history that have been completely omitted. And to me, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's apathy, silence erases our humanity. Where do you think this comes from, the SO
0: mission? Why isn't Asian American racism better understood or accounted for?
1: I think one of the key tools of oppression that have erased Asian Americans is the model minority myth. This idea that AAPIs can be really successful because they are white adjacent or because they are really hardworking, they don't speak up. We... Don't complain when there's an issue. And just for people who don't know, API stands for Asian American and Pacific Islander. And for those who subscribe by this model minority myth, it's the idea that if you, you know, do all of these things, that one day you will be handed the keys to the kingdom. And that's just not true. The data has shown that there is a bamboo ceiling in corporate America. It's like the glass ceiling. And the phrase refers to the idea that even if people work really hard, Asian-Americans will consistently be barred from C-suite jobs um, and decision-making positions. And I saw this sign recently at a march, and it said, if you like our food, care about our people. I think it just speaks to how in the model minority framework, we only exist to benefit you, but our pain, all of our complexities, the fact that we're not a monolith all that doesn't matter. (laughs) It's so, so important to be intersectional as we move forward into a more equitable world. And can
0: you say more about the coalition building? Like what does that actually look like on the ground?
1: Yeah, honestly, the reason why this broke outside of the bubble is because people like Questlove, Wanda Sykes, Amy Schumer, Alana Glazer reposted it. We wouldn't be here if it was not for other communities standing in solidarity. So half of it is a space that has been created because people feel like for the first time their grief is being seen and won't be erased, that their grief is validated. I can't tell you, there's literally thousands upon thousands of messages that I've been getting of people saying, hey, my father was murdered. Hey, my grandma was attacked. Hey, you know, like I got this racial note in my business telling me to get out of Texas. There are all of these messages that are flooding in because people feel like for the first time they can speak their truth and that includes their pain. And the other part of it is that There are other communities who are saying, yeah, I see you and I stand with you.
0: It sort of reminds me that this isn't your first time at coalition building. I heard you describe how when you went to testify before Congress for the first time, you were invited by both sides of the aisle. And when you went to sign in, the person didn't believe that you were supposed to be there. And it was a really disheartening way to start that experience. But you went back for your second of three times testifying, and you went with Terry Crews, who's an activist, an actor, former football player, and he was standing with you and supporting you. But actually, if I'm remembering correctly, after that first time, you called other leaders in the space,
1: like Alicia Garza, and were like, what do I do? Yeah. Intersectionality is the heart of what, at least RISE is doing at this moment. It's about visibility and that visibility has to be in conjunction with other communities standing in solidarity and also in creating these spaces of empathy. It's so difficult to talk about painful subjects and for people to start being vulnerable, I think one of the key things is for people to feel safe enough to do so. There are folks who Take that risk in the beginning to speak up. And when people see that, oh, okay, hey, that person is doing that, maybe I can do that too. That human-to-human aspect of organizing will always be part of organizing, even if it's moved digitally in this pandemic world, even if social media has been an enormous tool of activism and organizing
0: I wanted to talk more about RISE and the Justice Labs that you've developed because so much of what you're doing right now feels very related to that work. I mean, particularly in coalition building. Um, Can you talk about what RISE Justice Labs is and how you've brought
1: this coalition building model? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I actually wouldn't be here right now. And quite honestly, the movement would— not have had as many educational resources we've been able to pump out without my team at RISE. So I'm so grateful to them for working overtime as we're trying to meet this moment. RISE Justice Labs, RISE for short, is about teaching people their access point to democracy. So it's helping people pen their own civil rights into existence. And it started you know, from... Me seven so almost seven years ago now, when I needed civil rights, and I looked around and nobody was going to help me write them, so I decided to do it myself. And what was remarkable was not only that we were able to pass the Sexual Assault Survivor Bill of Rights unanimously, but that over a million people reached out to say, "Hey, you don't look like what it looks like to be in power, what a lawmaker looks like," and yet. You know, you were able to do this. So can you help me with my own community problem? Can you teach me? And that's what Rise Justice Labs does. We teach people how to use their voice and, you know, fulfill that constitutional right of petitioning the government. And part of what you
0: did that is so remarkable is that you— You've gamified lawmaking, which, P.S., when I think about making a law, I think above my pay grade, cannot do. And so how did you do that? What does that even look like?
1: Yeah, so games have a couple aspects to them that make it very addicting, but also make it very appealing. One is that there's a clear finish line. And this relates to burnout in activism. You know, a lot of people leave activism because over time they don't see a return on investment of their energy and there isn't this like deadline where they can say, okay, I'm done and now I reassess, you know, whether or not I can give more, what I can give. People just give, 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 and then they realize, oh, I can't do this anymore. Games also have different levels where you skills build. You have mini bosses, right, before you get to the big boss. And... It's really important. When people start out at RISE, most of them don't have a background in politics and it doesn't matter. (laughs) So what matters is that you're from that community you're trying to serve and that you have a heart and you also are willing to practice radical empathy. So we can get to that in a second. But the point of Hoponomics is the theory that I created to gamify the process of lawmaking is to make sure that As you are going through this process, you feel like there is momentum and that the energy that you're putting into something shows up as a result. So what does that mean? We are really metrics and data-driven. So for instance, every Sunday we have a report out where all of our campaign leads, so state directors, international directors for their international campaigns, read out the stats of what they accomplished that week. And if a bill gets passed in Alabama, it impacts how organizers on the ground feel in Alaska because people feel like they're part of a community. And that's also another part of games. I think about Nintendo,
0: which is the last time I played a game. I was, I don't know, seven. Seven. I think it was like version one, maybe, but like it's the gold coins. It was so satisfying to do something and get those gold coins. So this is like the gold coin version of that to get that payoff. It's ex- um, that's
1: exactly what it is. You're like ding ding, and it gives you yeah. energy, and then you're like, oh, I can keep going. Like I can handle more. Yeah, definitely. Getting a law signed seems really scary, but reaching out to one senator or reaching out to one representative and briefing them is a lot more doable. So it's about having a plan and making it bite sizable. I also think that one thing that you've
0: really identified is that the model that you started was around giving rights to sexual assault survivors, but that that was scalable and that so much of what applied to one group of people who were being just horribly mistreated by the political system could be expanded was there a moment when you realized like hey what we're doing here which by the way was tremendous like that legislation was went through in a congress that was not doing a lot of legislation so that on its own is remarkable but what was the moment you realized everything i'm doing here applies to these other issue areas. And also what are some of the other issue
1: areas that rise is now working on? Yeah. Well, if you work on civil rights issues, most likely you're going to be going through judiciary. And what I realized is that when I was doing cross-coalition building, that I could learn so much from the Marriage Equality movement, from other movements at that time. This is before Black Lives Matter, but still now from the Black Lives Matter movement. And there's this tendency in the field of, well, nonprofits, but also of activism to silo these issues. And there's so much turf. I mean, every single industry has turf. But it's so unfortunate when you have turf within these problems which are so critical, so urgent, and demands the attention and need for people to work together. And so one of the key things about Rise Justice Labs is making sure that people from all different types of movements are able to community build together. And that has happened with our cohorts and I'm so, so proud of them. So the first group that we incubated were the Parkland survivors and community. They came from, a lot of them from March Our Lives. And after they organized the march, they had come and said, hey, we have some ideas about how to pass legislation. We've seen you do it. Can you help us? And honestly, Before they came, I had already been thinking, okay, we have these massive resources about how to navigate different state houses, and it's absolutely applicable to other issues. But our goal is to get all 50 states done. Afterwards, we'd create this accelerator. But they came, and I said, you know what? Yeah, absolutely, we'll help you. And they were our pilot program. And they ended up passing extreme risk protection order in Colorado, which was the law that they had focused on during their time at RISE. And one of them, Cameron Marsh, ended up staying on to develop out the accelerator for other civil rights issues. We have our first cohort right now, actually. And it's the Tennessee Alliance for Black Lawyers. They're working on voting rights. And we have the Every Voice Coalition. They're working on campus sexual assault. And then the last one is called Breaking Code Silence. They are working on children's rights in the troubled teen industry. Paris Hilton is a part of the group. And, you know, all of these incredible activists and organizers have been such a joy to work with. It's a 12-week program at Rise Justice Labs. And every single week, it's a different topic. Like, drafting your bill, to developing your communications plan, to developing your fundraising development program. You know, and the biggest joy has been to see not only them grow through the process, but also to see them work together, cross-pollination between issues.
0: I'm curious also if I haven't yet had the chance to take part in Rise Justice Labs, but I'm a listener and I want to help in my own way. I want to take part my own way what are the sort of key things that I can take away from this? Like from your really difficult life experiences and what you came through with them, what can I learn? How can I do this better?
1: Well, just know that you already have it in you. So the people who have the solutions to the world's most pressing problems are the people who live that problem every day. And there is a huge gap between those people and the people who hold the pen to write these laws. Rise Justice Labs is about bridging that gap and – I want folks to just know that you might feel like your access routes to democracy are limited. So most people ask, what do I do beyond voting or marching? And there is another option. That option is to write those laws yourself. You can pen your own civil rights into existence. You can organize and make your community better. And you can check out Rise Justice Labs if you want to. We have applications that are gonna be open And people can apply with their own ideas. And if you get accepted, we'll incubate you and your social movement, accelerate your civil rights campaign. And even if you don't get accepted, our lectures are public. (laughs) So we really invite people to be able to access it because we aren't about hoarding information. If people know me, they know that I love space and I want to go to space. So what I want to do is be able to pass on all this knowledge, create that blueprint so that I can get off the earth.
0: (laughs) Wait, so I genuinely curious, what is the space? What is the next chapter of space for Amanda? Like, are you going soon? Is there a 10-year plan, a five-year plan? And why space?
1: I know I've heard that space has long been a goal, but what is it about space? There's this effect that happens when astronauts go to space for the first time, it's called the overview effect. And it's an existential crisis, essentially. It's onducing, terrifying, and it's a reset where people see everything that's ever lived or died on this pale blue dot. It's often referred to also as Spaceship Earth. And it makes these astronauts leave Earth as technical people, scientists, and return to Earth as humanitarians, profoundly moved, to change the world around them. And that overview effect has always helped get me through tough times, to have that perspective, that orbital perspective, and remember that we really are a blink of an eye in the universe. And while that can be both very scary, it could be both humbling and makes me feel so, so special. And so every day when I wake up, the burning questions that I have is, what is my place in the universe and what am I going to do about it? And I think both astrophysics and activism answers that question.
0: It's interesting because it seems like you already have that perspective and that you're going to, you just want to see it to have it reaffirmed.
1: But also maybe you'll take it to the next level. Well, I just also want to tell people that we are multitudes, rises. Current campaign now on anti-Asian hate crimes and making us more visible is a part of a thread of a larger tapestry of justice, right? All of these things that I've mentioned, justice, voting rights and sexual assaults, robber rights and children's rights, we're all interconnected. And I think a lot of people may be scared to take their first step into activism, perhaps because they're afraid it might define them. And I want people to know that we are multitudes, you know, you can love fashion, you can love space, you can be an activist, you can be it all. And that at the end of the day, it's about making you fulfill your own soul to be happy because joy is the most radical form of rebellion. Yeah.
0: Speaking of fashion, by the way, Amanda, there is a photo of you on Instagram in this fetch white Dress alongside Kamala Harris. And I just want to reinforce the point that you can be a humanitarian and also have great fashion sense. (laughs) I'm getting married, or I am married, but I'm having a wedding someday when the pandemic ends. And I was like, oh, I wish that were my wedding dress. Ah, oh, it's so great. Also, it sort of looks like something, and I hope this is a compliment, out of Star Trek. Like, everything is coming back to space for me. Even Rise now feels like, oh, it's like a spaceship going into the universe, like rising above it all so you can get that astronaut's perspective. That's so funny. Were you really excited about the landing in Mars?
1: Um, Duh. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It's definitely my self-care. <laughs> <laughs> Did you watch it live or recapped after? Oh my gosh, I had to do a recap. It was so sad. I had to watch it after. But honestly, it just fills my heart with joy because these people work for literally decades in oh order God. to have this moment. And I think that watching scientists see their mission fulfilled, either it be through a launch or a landing or whatever it is, That, to me, is one of the purest forms of love there is. A love of science, of mission, and of, quite honestly, posterity, because science is for all. On that, thank you so much. Thanks, Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned for the rest of March as we talk to more incredible leaders for Women's History Month. And don't forget to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.